0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The state opening of parliament took place this week with the
1: Prince of Wales delivering a Queen speech aimed at resetting Boris Johnson's government.
2: Her Majesty's government's priority is to grow and strengthen the economy and help ease the cost of living for families. Her Majesty's government will level up opportunity in all parts of the country, and support more people into work. Her Majesty's Ministers will continue to support the police to make the streets safer and fund the National Health Service to reduce the COVID backlogs.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be delving into this year's Queen's Speech, not delivered by Her Majesty, but her son, and whether it goes far enough to ease the relations between the Prime Minister and his party. But does it also go far enough on the cost of living crisis? And is Boris Johnson prepared to do more? Our Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard will analyse the Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley. And after, it's time to return to Brexit and the latest clashes between the UK and the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. After last week's Assembly elections, are matters finally coming to a head? And is there any space left for a deal? Political Editor George Parker will discuss with our island Correspondent Jude Webber. Thanks all for joining the pod. The Queen's speech is one of those occasions that shows the British state at its best, pomp and circumstance. With golden carriages and a big stick knocking on a big wooden door, it's a dream for those who adore tradition.
3: Mr Speaker, the Queen commands its Honourable House to attend her Councillors of State immediately in the House of Peers.
1: Well, in the actual substance of the Queen's speech, if there was a culinary theme, it would be red meat. It was designed by the Prime Minister and Downing Street to try and ease relations with his party who feel the government's been going in a too unconservative direction. But above all this is the cost of living crisis, soaring inflation, rising interest rates, and a sense the government might not quite be doing enough to help the poorest who are struggling at the moment. In the debate after the Queen's speech, Boris Johnson hinted further help might be coming down the tracks
0: therefore have the fiscal firepower to help families
4: up and down the country with all the pressures they face now and we will continue to use all our ingenuity and compassion for as long as it takes and my right honourable friend the Chancellor and I will be saying more about this in the days to come.
1: Well, Robert Shrimpsley, it's great to have you back on the pod as always. If we can just become royal correspondents for one moment. This year's Queen's speech was very significant as it was the first one in almost 60 years the Queen has not delivered herself. I think in 1959 and 1963, she was pregnant and it was delivered by the then Lord Chancellor. But it was unknown until the day whether Her Majesty would attend. She did not. And she's put out a rule change, a letters patent to allow uh, the Prince of Wales to deliver that speech with the Duke of Cambridge in press. As well, and seeing him there
3: delivering the Queen's speech, it did feel like quite a big constitutional moment. I think it did, and it didn't. I mean, it was a very poignant moment because obviously you had him there and you had the empty chair where the queen would sit and her crown placed at the center. And I think the message, in a way, they were giving over, you know, the queen is going to be the queen as long as she is alive. And that's a fact. But you know, she's a non she's not especially well. And what they were also signalling to us is, but, you know, we have absolute continuity. The The Prince of Wales, who's been, you know, waiting to take this job for all of his life, is there. He will step up. He will take more and more on the duties. But I don't think we're going to see some great constitutional upheaval. I'm not a royal correspondent, so I could just be wrong on this. But I don't think it means we're going to see a regency or an abdication anything like that. This is how it's going to be. The Queen is there in spirit. The Prince of Wales is there in practice. And that's going to be, I think, what we see for the rest of her reign. It's worth pointing out one last thing. Obviously, this was not a long-planned matter because even until the day before, she was hoping to be present. But I think what we're seeing is the visible handing over of power. Absolutely, and an expert I did speak
1: to on this is Kath Haddon from the Institute for Government, who has been on this podcast before, and she told me that there's no talk of invoking the Regency Act, and instead, this is actually a template which we might see more of in the months ahead of Prince Charles, as you said, being the physical presence of the monarchy, but the Queen is still very much the spiritual and symbolic one. But we are a politics podcast, so let's get back to the politics. Jim Picard, this Queen's speech, like all Queen speeches, was very heavily trailed over a long period of time. And we knew all of the key things in it. And it very much felt like the sort of final phase of this parliament with 38 pieces of legislation, some of them quite chunky, designed to reset where Boris Johnson is going. And as I said at the beginning, try and reset some relations with his party. Do you think it succeeded?
4: Well, I I think there's an element of red meat for Tory right wing MPs. For example, you know, you've got sentences of up to 12 months for environmental protesters who lock themselves to crucial infrastructure, you know, that's the kind of thing that the backbenchers like. There's a lot of talk about economic growth and certain bills which could theoretically help economic growth. And also sort of Brexit opportunities. I think there might have been half a dozen bills which were linked to Britain having left the EU. So whether it's a data reform bill, which basically allows the UK to have its own data protection framework, and shake off the complicated rules inherited from the EU's GDPR regime, or whether it's a genetic technology bill, which is a sort of departure from EU policy, or whether it's the Bill of Rights, which is where they're scrapping the Human Rights Act and clarifying that British judges no longer have any requirement to follow ECHR case law. And you also have a levelling up bill, which of course is another key political theme of this government. And the levelling up bill will include things like compulsory rent auctions of vacant high street properties. It also sets levelling up targets. But as a cynic, I have to point out that Bloomberg did some very good research showing this week that for the last two or three years under Boris Johnson, the kind of targets they were looking at levelling up, the metrics they were looking at levelling up has been going backwards and London and the Southeast have been outperforming everywhere else yet again. Now, Robert, on that Leveling Up Bill, it didn't wasn't just about those
1: twelve targets that we've talked about before, but it also had planning reform in as well. And this is something that the government has struggled with. It was in the Tory manifesto in 2019 to try and deal with this. Robert Jenrick, the former Housing Secretary, sort of struggled because the fact was a lot of Southern Conservative MPs in more traditional Tory-facing seats were not happy at the prospect of their green and pleasant lands, in say Maidenhead, to give a random example, would disappear. And so Michael Gove a bit of a compromise. But when you look at it, it does feel as
3: if it's all been watered down quite a lot. I don't know if it's a compromise exactly, because a compromise would suggest that you're still going to be moving forward in a a powerful way. What he's come up with is a very attractive idea. And were it to work, we will be singing his praises for decades and decades. Because Essentially, he's saying there is a new and better way to plan for communities, which is to get much more direct community involvement in them, to make them buy into the plans, even the idea of street votes on certain types of development. In other words, make developers have to win over the community directly rather than just powerful figures in the planning authorities. They'll have to make the the developments more attractive. They'll have to think about the community infrastructure around it. It's a very, very appealing idea and one which, if it worked, would be fantastic. The problem with it is, Many people think it won't work. You only have to think about the fight you have with your neighbours over your fence, over two millimetres on your fence line to know that that nimbyism is very deeply ingrained. People always want development, just not quite next to them. And so the worry will be that this carrot approach rather than the stick simply doesn't deliver the extra housing that is needed, especially in the south of the country. The previous model, the Robert Jenrick model you were alluding to, you know, was a stick method where essentially you said, where, where central government could say, we need this many houses, in your council it's going to be this many. You've got to do it. And that was obviously very, very unappealing to councillors, to residents, and obviously, therefore, to their MPs. So, this is a Gove way of trying to find a middle ground. The question simply is whether it will work. And I think there is a lot of doubt, and that's the problem. Now, one of the pieces of legislation, Jim, was the energy
1: security bill. And this obviously brings us to the big topic that overshadowed the whole of the Queen's speech, which was not just those things on planning and reform, but is the government really doing enough to deal with rising inflation interest rates? And Keir Starmer, the Labour leader,
2: felt not. This government's failure to grow the economy over a decade, combined with its inertia in the face of spiralling bills... Means that we are staring down the barrel of something we haven't seen in decades a stagflation crisis. It is a truly shocking legacy of this government. It should humble those on the benches opposite who've ignored the red lights on our economy. Um, Jim, do you think that's fair? Is this all
1: entirely Boris Johnson's fault? Or are there more global factors at play here? For example, obviously, the sanctions on Russia and this locking up of supply chains following the pandemic?
4: There's a lot to unpick here. I think the first point is you're absolutely right, Seb. The main reason for the pain in household finances at the moment is the price of gas soaring. That is the reason why the household energy cap went up by 54% in April and it's probably going to go up again in the autumn. That is indirectly the reason why your grocery bills are going up. And it's also the primary driver why inflation generally is forecast to hit 10% later this year. So to blame Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak for that is somewhat ludicrous. And I think also the idea that you could use your legislative programme, your Queen's Speech, to suddenly turn on some magic dial and produce economic growth is again for the birds. And fascinatingly, David Canzini, who's now the all-powerful deputy chief of staff in Number 10, has been telling people over the last few weeks, you can't legislate your way to economic growth. But then again, in the Queen's speech script, they suggested, you know, this government's priorities are tackling the cost of living and and, generating economic growth. So they're trying to imply the opposite of what Canzini says privately. Publicly, they're trying to imply that these 38 bills will somehow give Britain the economic growth that it hopes for. I think the Canzini thing is fascinating in another way as well, which is that this government really doesn't know whether it's interventionist or non-interventionist. You know, it's not quite that easy to, to pick apart what its philosophy is. But what we've seen from Canzini is we know what his philosophy is, which is he wants to or he has been stripping away inverted commas, unconservative policies. So a lot of corporate government stuff that we've been expecting and that business groups actually were quite happy with you know, such as providing statutory powers for technology watchdog, uh, improving order in the UK, creating a new football supervisory authority, and also an employment bill, which would have allowed people to work from home as a sort of default option, that kind of thing. All of that has been jettisoned. And that is the influence of Canzini, who's the former business partner of Linton Crosby. And Canzini has used the phrase, we should be sweeping the barnacles off the boat. And ironically, That is the same phrase that Crosby used back in 2013 when he encouraged the David Cameron government to drop a load of anti-business policies such as plain cigarette packaging and the register of lobbyists. And then it became a bit uncomfortable for Crosby because it turned out that scrapping those things was benefiting some of the clients of his company.
1: Now, obviously, you said you can't, and the view of Mr Canzini is you can't legislate your way towards economic growth, but there is growing pressure, even from the Tory benches, for the government to do something before the next budget. David Davis, the former cabinet minister, had this to say after the Queen's speech.
2: And the prime minister, I think, used the phrase deploying our fiscal firepower. Well, we need to deploy our fiscal firepower
3: now when our constituents need it after they've already suffered uh, the increases in prices they face now uh, and the the, the more that they'll face
4: in the uh, latter part of the year.
1: What's your feeling, Robert, on whether they are going to do anything about this? Because I guess there's a couple of things in the ether. One is a win for tax on the energy companies, which there's been various briefings to and from that either way, and from Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson, some saying they are in favour, some saying they aren't in favour. We've also got a question of whether you put more money into universal credit to help those who can't work or who are disabled, who are suffering with inflation. And then the topic of your excellent column this week, which is tax cuts. And I saw that Rupert Harrison, again, who's been on this podcast, the former chief advisor to the chancellor, moved to the idea of a temporary cut in VAT to try and ease cost of living. What do you make of all three of those things and what, which of them are likely to potentially
3: happen? The point about economic growth measures that, that Jim mentioned, there are a lot of quite interesting and potentially quite good measures on supply side reform, scaling up the country and such like, but these things just take too long to happen. These are things that I think the government is right to do, but they're not going to change the picture today. I think the government is torn between two concerns. The first, which we all know about, is inflation. And the second is stagflation. And the instinct of the government is to fight inflation. And for that purposes, having people with a bit less money, spending less, reducing demand on the economy is the way to go. So there is a temptation, especially at the Treasury, to say, well, actually, let's just hang on a few months and let's just see if we can't begin to get inflation curbed before we do anything. The problem is In the meantime, a lot of people are suffering very, very substantially. And there is enormous pressure, almost political pressure, to act.
1: Well, Jim, if we look at all those measures that we were talking about there, what's your feeling on which of them might happen? Because I think the Treasury is in a wait-and-see mindset, but the pressure
4: is going for them to do something. Yeah, so you mentioned the windfall tax on the oil and gas industry. And Rishi Senak, as Chancellor, has been on quite a journey here, hasn't he? Because for months and months on end, they've been saying this would be counterproductive. It's a stupid idea. It would cut off companies from investing in the North Sea or in renewable energy. And therefore, we think it's very unconservative. And even though there's been all this pressure from Labour and the Lib Dems. But uh, you'll remember there was that Mumsnet interview that Sunak did maybe two or three weeks ago where he said it was actually on the table. And since then, the Treasury and Sunak have made very, very clear that what they expect from the oil and gas companies is for them to set out new Investment plans for Britain, whether it's North Sea oil and gas or whether it's wind farms, whatever it is, because this is all part of trying to improve uh, our own self reliance on energy so we're not importing gas from Russia or anywhere else around the world in future. And the interesting thing is that we had those enormous profits from Shell and BP last week, which surprised not only the Treasury, but also surprised some people within those companies. And it's made it harder for them to draw the line against a windfall tax, which I imagine would be very popular with the public. And then what we've also seen emanating from the government is a disappointment that when BP and Shell said, you know, these are our enormous profits, but we also do have investment pipelines in Britain. The government's perception of that is that those investment pipelines don't represent any material enhancement or improvement on what these companies were previously offering. And therefore, there's a sort of feeling in the government that the oil and gas companies they're making it hard for the government to not do a windfall tax. So the odds of one has increased. That doesn't necessarily mean it will happen, but it would be much less surprising if it did. And I think to answer your question, Seb, so the second thing is: I am sure that Sunak will do a package of relief for bills. He did one in February, it was 9 billion quid, but a lot of that nine billion quid was in the form of loans people will have to pay back in the long term. I think we'll see something in August coinciding with the Ofgem announcement about what bills will do in October because you get a couple of months notice. The expectation is that bills will probably, they've already gone up from about £1,300 on the household energy cap to just under £2,000. They could go up by another £400, £500, £600, nobody knows, unless there's some surprising fall in the price of gas. And he has to do something about that, the political imperative for it is pretty black and white. What he will do on universal credit, other tax cuts. I, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe Robert might have some ideas on, on those. Well, finally, Robert, as Jim said, it feels
1: like there is going to be some kind of package. But there is a tension. And you saw this from Jacob Reesmog, the uh, Brexit opportunities minister, who said that you know any more spending by its very nature is going to be inflationary. And this is the argument of the act Treasury, we're just
3: waiting and see. But do you think there's anything further that's actually going to happen? Um, I do think they are going to have to do more. But the question, not only the tension between inflation and the fear of recession, which is, you know, this is a supply side inflation, so it's not the normal kind that governments find more easily to deal with. I think that they are going to have to do a few things. I think the political imperative is impossible to resist. And like Jim says, I think they'll do it around the time of the next price rise being announced. Rishi Sunak's always had a, a dislike of universal credit. He doesn't prove it as a principle. He thinks there are other ways you can help people. He's talked in the past, just wanted to send people a check rather than weekly payments. That's not a simple matter to do. The measures that one can look at, certainly some kind of extra targeted fuel poverty relief, either through universal credit directly or through some of the other schemes. I definitely think the option of cutting VAT on energy to zero from 5% is, is live and one they could do. The disagreement with that has always been obviously People who are better off and have higher energy bills benefit more in cash terms, although the impact of energy bills is felt more keenly on those with less money. So it's quite an attractive measure. The other thing then hits is the political dimension, which is that's the right thing to do. There's also a lot of Conservative MPs who want to start seeing tax cuts. Taxes have gone up under this government. Uh, tax thresholds, the stealth tax rate rose. And there is also the pressure on him to deliver tax cuts for their own supporters their own people who are also struggling and, you know, who will say, well, it's great you're doing stuff for the poor, but we're also finding things harder. What are you doing for us? And that's where you hit the inflationary concern. And I think he is going to have to deliver some tax cuts this year. Now, whether he does it in August or whether, as I suspect his instinct is, is to wait until his budget at the end of the year, he's going to have to start delivering these for political, tactical reasons. They're not necessarily the right economic policy, but the politics of starting to deliver substantial tax cuts is going to become irresistible for a Conservative government, because for all the wedge issues that we've talked about in this Queen's speech, the Brexity stuff, the law and order stuff, the overwhelming priority for the country when you look at any issues, polls is the economy. The blue water that he wants to establish between himself and the Labour Party is frankly only going to be delivered by tax cuts. But Jim and Robert, thank you very much.
1: Another big headache is vexing Boris Johnson's government, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, Brexit is back, and once again, the UK and EU are at each other's throats. After months of negotiations, neither side are any closer to figuring out a compromise on the contentious issue of trading relations between Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain. The crisis has been brought to a head by last week's Northern Ireland Assembly elections, where the pro-nationalist Sinn Féin party came first, but it's the pro-unionist Democratic Unionist party who are refusing to enter government without the protocol being scrapped or significantly amended. Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, leader of the DUP, explained why the results showed action had to be taken.
2: I stood in the election last week. Not a single Unionist member was returned to the Assembly that supports the protocol. There is no consensus for this. It needs to be dealt with. It is harming our economy. It is driving up the cost of living. It is undermining political stability in Northern Ireland. It threatens the Good Friday Agreement. It has to be dealt with.
1: Jude Webber, welcome to Payne's Politics. It's an absolute delight to have you with us. Explain how these assembly elections have changed the whole dynamic around the protocol and what the results mean for what's happening now.
5: They have changed everything very significantly because Northern Ireland was created by partition in 1921 And it was created as a place for unionists who were then in the majority. So it's absolutely hugely significant for Nationalist Party that's committed to Irish unification to come first. They were head and shoulders above the DUP in the first preference vote, and they ended up with a couple more seats than the DUP. So this is this is really, you know, they really bloodied the noses of the party that has for 15 years been very dominant in the region. Sinn Féin ran its campaign on the cost of living and helping ordinary people and fixing the health service and things like this. And the DUP said all of those things too. But the DUP also made everything pivotal on getting rid of this Irish sea border, which imposes custom checks on, on goods moving between Britain and Northern Ireland. Geoffrey Donaldson says that this has pushed prices up by 27%. But he was using figures that weren't publicly available and actually don't appear to be true. You know, think tanks in the UK say, actually the protocol, and businesses too, say the protocol is benefiting Northern Ireland. So now this issue is front and centre and it's just paralysing everything. I'm speaking to you on Friday morning. The DUP in a couple of hours will... Go up to Stormont, where the Assembly is based, and sign the register because under the 1998 peace agreements that ended the Troubles, all legislators have to go and designate themselves as belonging to either the Unionist bloc or the Nationalist bloc or, you know, to designate themselves as other because cross-community consent is required for things to run here, for politics to work. So the DUP will go and sign in and then they will not take part in the election of a speaker and they will not allow... For the formation of an executive so they're basically vetoing everything and this will paralyze politics in northern ireland until the protocol is fixed
1: Well, George Parker, I'm sure you're as pleased as I am that we're talking about Brexit once again. As Jude set out the situation, these assembly elections have really shaken up the situation at the moment there. And Boris Johnson's government have leapt on this to try and bring this issue of the protocol to a head because they've been talking about this for months, if not years, and they've been trying to force the EU to give way on some kind of compromise. But it still doesn't feel as if we're really getting anywhere on that front.
2: No, I mean, there were talks this week between Liz Truss, the UK Foreign Secretary, and Maros Sefcovic, her opposite number in Brussels, which ended in deadlock and certain amount of recrimination. So the talks have got exactly nowhere. And as a result, the British government is threatening to bring in legislation, basically to override parts of the protocol, with the intention, as Jube was saying there, of getting the DUP and the Unionist parties back into the executive and getting a government up and running in Northern Ireland. So you know things have changed a lot since the elections to Stormont. And the fact of the matter is that the protocol was always going to be a problem for Northern Ireland politics. Theresa May famously said that putting a border in the Irish Sea was something no British Prime Minister could ever accept. Boris Johnson did it. It was never going to be acceptable to unionist politicians that you separated Northern Ireland from the rest of the country with a trade border. But we are where we are, and frankly, both sides now have a stake in maintaining order and the peace process and good governance in Northern Ireland, not just the UK government, but also the EU as well. And, uh, you know, both sides are now are under a huge amount of pressure to try and find a way through this.
5: Yeah, I just wanted to come in on that point of the peace process, because London is saying that they need to act in order to protect the Good Friday Agreement, which was the deal that was signed in 1998 to end the troubles. And the DUP use the argument all the time that the Good Friday Agreement is being undermined. But the UK government is also going a bit further and saying that this is fueling civil unrest. I'm up in Belfast at the moment. There's no rioting on the streets or anything like this, but it's a fragile situation. And loyalists say that there could be trouble ahead. You know, we're going into the marching season in July, when which is the, the highlight of the unionist calendar. And if this protocol issue isn't resolved, then, then perhaps we could see tensions flared. The DUP are well aware that the Tory government have thrown them under the bus repeatedly in the past. And so they are going nuclear in this way by not joining the executive at Stormont and not even allowing the assembly to form because they really feel that they need to keep turning the screws on Boris Johnson because they feel they'll be let down again.
1: Well, someone who also feels let down by this situation is Sinn Féin and Michelle O'Neill had this to say about why they are not happy with Boris Johnson's attitude on the protocol.
5: Our interests must be respected. We have received or we achieved mitigation uh, in the form of the protocol to mitigate against the worst excesses of a hard Brexit, which the Tories and the DUP delivered. We now expect that to be implemented. Find ways to smooth the implementation, but don't hold the people and society here to ransom whilst that work is underway.
1: Well, George, the way that things look as if they're going to pan out as we're recording this on Friday is that on Monday, Boris Johnson is going to give a speech where he's going to talk about getting Northern Ireland working again. And I think actually the similar kind of things you've just heard Michelle O'Neill talk about there in terms of the health service, of money, of COVID backlogs, of all that kind of stuff. But of course, he well knows that isn't going to happen unless DUP go back into administration. And that's not going to happen until the protocol is fixed. So therefore, it sounds like the UK is about to take. Unilateral action against it because
2: those talks, as you said, with the EU are going nowhere. What is that going to look like? Well, up until now, the talk has been about using the powers within the treaty, so called Article 16, to suspend parts of the protocol. But what Boris Johnson's talking about, and this is the story that the excellent Peter Foster broke a couple of months ago, is to go down the legislative route and basically passing UK legislation to override parts of the Brexit deal, the international treaty we signed with the EU covered trade with Northern Ireland. And that's a huge step. It means unilaterally ripping up an international treaty, something that Theresa May and the House of Commons criticised this week. But nevertheless, Britain says it's the only way they can resolve the issue, can control the checks that are taking place on the Irish Sea border. They say there'll be safeguards written into the legislation to stop dodgy goods entering the European single market over the land border into the Republic of Ireland. And they see this as a way through. But it's fraught with danger, Seb, because... Not only does it risk the possibility of retaliation by the EU and the possibility, at least, of a trade war, which is obviously not ideal when you're in the middle of an economic crisis, but it will inflame tensions with the Biden administration in Washington. But there's also a UK domestic political risk. And you mentioned at the top there that we're delighted that we're talking about Brexit again. The point is, it's not just us. It's more importantly, it's the public who are sick to death of Brexit. And if you put legislation through Parliament to do this, it will run into a Tory opposition in the House of Commons. And it will run into a huge amount of resistance in the very pro-European House of Lords. And that means for months on end, you'll be hearing discussions like this on your radio, on your television, people talking about Brexit. And the longer that goes on, the more the public will ask themselves, hang on, why is the government still talking about Brexit? Three years after we were told by Boris Johnson it was done, when we're in the middle of an economic crisis. So there's a whole range of dangers that lie ahead, which just make make the final point. I think Boris Johnson genuinely hopes that this can be negotiated with the European Union without the need for him to revert to UK legislation. It It would be a much simpler and politically less fraught way of dealing with this.
1: Well, it's interesting that, George, because I spoke to senior Tory strategists who's probably going to be involved in running the party's next election campaign. And they said to me, you know, in 2019, we promise to get Brexit done. If we're going into the next election and still talking about Brexit, we'll be punished by the public because there's some people who think Boris Johnson wants to keep stoking this round. There are obviously Conservative MPs who love nothing more than talking about Brexit endlessly. But I think for the government and for the party, there is a very real sense there that they can't keep this thing going on. So they obviously want to get this thing solved, but I don't think keeping it going endlessly. Now, you mentioned the impact of this at home. There's obviously some Tory MPs like the ERG who are very supportive of this, that Steve Baker, former head of the ERG, and Lord David Frost, who negotiated the protocol, have backed Boris Johnson. But someone who didn't back it is the former British Prime Minister, Theresa May.
2: I think the government needs to consider not just some immediate issues, but also the
3: wider sense of what such a move would say about the United Kingdom and its willingness to abide by treaties, which it has signed.
1: So Jude, there is this question that if this legislation is introduced, it will have a big damage to the UK's international standing, as Theresa May was said there. What's the sense in Belfast about that?
5: I think people are outraged at the prospect of that. The Nationalist Party Sinn Féin won the election. What unionists point out is that the number of people who voted for unionist parties was higher than the number of people who voted for nationalist parties. But then the the fact is that the number of legislators elected who support the protocol in some form, who maybe want to tinker with it and fix it, but actually recognise it must stay, is higher than the people who want to get rid of it. So the prospect of... All of this being done over again, and as you say, the prospect of the UK, you know, its moral standing being impacted by reneging on a treaty that it signed, is going down like a ton of bricks. The other thing I just wanted to mention, just you know, as we face the prospect of this being the endless source of discussion for months and months and months, is that the impact on Northern Ireland is also months of limbo. We're we're now, if there's no executive formed, and there won't be, then we have a period of 24 weeks, which is basically six months, where they can try to form an executive. And if at the end of that period, they can't form an executive, then the Secretary of State has to call an election within 12 weeks. So basically, we're looking at the prospects, which cheers nobody in Northern Ireland, of another election at the end of this year or the start of next year, if this issue can't be resolved.
1: Because on that, Jude, so if the government introduces this legislation next week to unilaterally override the postcard, I think we all agree that is probably going to happen. That's still not going to be enough for the DUP to go into the executive.
5: It isn't. The DUP say they've been promised the land of milk and honey before. They say it's time for action, that words are no longer enough. And so they will welcome it and they will cheer it when it's presented. But they will want to see it actually get through Parliament.
1: Well, George, this is the issue, I guess, is that we're really just starting yet another clock. And again, if we think back to the withdrawal agreement negotiations, the trade and cooperation agreement negotiations, it's always about trying to institute that moment of political decision making. And what it sort of feels, if we were to take a more sympathetic view towards the government, I think everybody feels the protocol is not ideal and it does need to be resolved in some way. But the feeling in Whitehall is that Mao the EU's negotiator on this, doesn't have the mandate to significantly renegotiate the protocol. So all he can do is tinker around the edges. And it feels like this whole thing is just about trying to get the attention of EU leaders. So you introduce this legislation... It takes months to go through Parliament, and by the way, the House of Lords will really get stuck into it and try and amend it, but let's it gets through eventually unscathed. Then Boris Johnson has those powers, and he will then say to the EU, and probably particularly to Emmanuel Macron uh, of France, you know, look, we've got this power, we're going to do this, do you want to seriously talk about changing the protocol, or are we going to unilaterally overdo it? It feels like that's the moment the Prime Minister wants to get
2: to months down the track. Yeah, I think that's right. You're right that they do want to sort of force a moment of crisis, which will force people to confront this issue. And unfortunately, the timetable you've just set out there said plunges Northern Ireland into months of political limbo without a government at a very difficult time. So that's not ideal. But you're right. I mean, there is a feeling in London that uh, Maros Sefcovic has gone as far as he can with his existing negotiating mandate. Sefcovic said to his trust this week that he didn't have a mandate to go any further. The EU member states have made it clear so far, at least, that they don't want to Change the mandate. With some justification, people in the EU say, well, hang on, this is a problem of Boris Johnson's own making. He wanted Brexit. He negotiated the protocol. You know, we're not going to rewrite the protocol and the treaty you know, literally a year and a half after it came into effect. That's their position. But I would just say this about the EU position they are involved in the political process in Northern Ireland, as is the Irish government, of course, a member of the European Union. And both sides now have an obligation to put aside their differences on this and I like, can understand where the, why the differences are there and come to a practical solution because the, the honest truth of the matter is the European single market is not endangered by the risks of sausages coming into the Republic of Ireland there are ways you can deal with this with goodwill I appreciate why there's no trust on the European side towards Boris Johnson or indeed any goodwill but to be honest both sides are going to have to rise above their rivalries and the past disagreements, because there's an awful lot at stake here as Stu was setting out at the start.
1: That's right. And I think, you know, I spoke to someone senior in London, George, who was saying to me, look, we're not saying no checks. We understand there were checks, in fact, before Brexit. It's really about trying to get that into a state that is manageable, that is acceptable to both sides. And it feels like there could be space for a deal. It's just going to be quite difficult to get in there. But I'm sure... We will be returning this to many times in the future. George and Jude, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual places you get your pods to have the episodes land every Saturday morning. And while you're there, leave us a positive review and a nice rating. Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thank you very much for listening.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall.
0: yahoofinance.com.